Welcome to Inspire Church's podcast. We're excited you're listening. Our hope is to inspire you to grow in God's Word, to grow more in love with Christ, and to go be a light wherever you are. To find more teachings or donate to the ministry, visit us at inspirechurches.com. So excited to get into God's word this morning. I just want you to know that I miss you. I can't wait till we get to come back together, but I am excited that we at least get to worship uh, in our homes with each other and get into God's word. Right now, we are in the middle of a series, our Easter series, called Behold the Lamb. And so we're going to start off by reading God's word this morning. If you could turn to Isaiah 53, and we're going to read the entire chapter. And so it goes like this, the reading of God's word says, uh, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender root and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned from our own ways, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was like a lamb to the slaughter. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter slaughter and as a sheep before his shearers is silent so he did not open his mouth by oppression and judgment he was taken away yet who of his generation protested for he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people he was punished he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death though he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth yet it was the Lord will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, we shall see his offspring and prolong his days. And this will be the Lord I'm sorry, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give them a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Wow. You know, uh, it wasn't that long ago that a couple had asked Beck and I to go on a double date with them, and we said, sure, and they wanted to pick the restaurant, so we went, and uh, they said, well, you're going to have to kind of dress up a little fancy, so we did. Uh, I suit and tied it. She put on a gown. We went. She did her hair. It was great. We rolled up to the restaurant, and as we walked in right away, you could tell this place was straight bougie. We get there. They take our coats. They go to sit us down. Uh, the, the, the person there put a 
a napkin on our lap. I mean, it was awesome. And even the air that we breathed felt different. It was so crazy. And as I sat down and they handed us the menu, I began to look at all the things that they offered. And then I looked at the price and I almost had a heart attack. Uh, and so the price was $120 a person to eat dinner there. And at that point, I mean, my heart just sank. You know, I got a little sweat on my brow. Beck and I looked at each other like, oh man, what are we going to do? I mean, at this point, we're just kind of freaking out inside, but we're trying to keep cool, right? And then all of a sudden, our friend from across the table says, hey, listen, I got you covered. Man, that was a beautiful statement that brought relief to me. And I was like, man, I love those words. He says, I got you covered. From that point on, I felt comfortable. I felt free. I was like, man, I'm going to just eat everything, two of everything, three of everything. At this point, I was so relieved that I heard those words, I got you covered. And what's interesting about that is when we talk about covering a debt, we aren't talking about hiding it, but, but rather it actually cancels out the debt by the equivalent payment. And that's precisely what the Old Testament means when it introduces us to the notion of something called atonement, which we see really throughout all of scripture. Um, many have coined this pattern, the scarlet thread of the Bible. And for the past few weeks, we have been unraveling this thread, showing the various types and shadows that point to a greater reality. And as the thread of this tapestry of God's word is revealed in all of its uh, ambient hues and nuances, that everything in the Old Testament prophetically pointed to Jesus Christ. And in particular for this series that we're in, um, his penal substitutionary sacrifice, which will cause us and lead us to look at this, at this uh, image of a lamb, but not just any lamb, the lamb of God. And all we're doing is just following the blood. You see, we, we see it started with the animal skins that covered Adam and Eve's nakedness and then Abel's offering and his death. And then from there, it flowed to Noah's ark and his altar, then down to the power, uh, to the tower of Babel. And then from there, the blood trickled down to the snared ram provided in Isaac's place on Mount Moriah. Then this, the, this scarlet thread then leads us to uh, Joseph, where the blood of the lamb had to be applied to the coat. Then the blood from there uh, caused us to go see the blood-stained doorposts in Egypt's Passover, and then the rock that Moses struck, which represented the rock of ages, and, and the blood of the Lamb of God being poured out, providing uh, life to God's people. Uh, and what we recognize is that the Lamb's blood seeps. It seeps all the way through Scripture from Genesis to Exodus uh, to Leviticus, where we see the garments of the high priest and the, and the scarlet cords of the temple, all of this pointing to the atonement of Jesus Christ. And with each turn of holy of the pages of the Bible, we see the image of God sort of rising up from the ink and from the paper. And I'm excited as we continue on this journey to behold the Lamb. So what I want to do before we dive in is I want us to pray. Would you join me? Heavenly Father, I thank you, God, that we're able to open your word and that we're able to dive deep, Lord God, that, that we are going to mine it, Lord God, for all of its wealth, 
this morning. And I just thank you, Heavenly Father, that the blood of the Lamb has not lost its efficacious propensities, Lord God. And I thank you, Heavenly Father. I thank you, God, for sanctifying this moment, Lord God, and dispensing even more grace, Lord God. Minister to our broken places. And Heavenly Father, I pray that the gospel may be heard and that your Son, Jesus Christ, may be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, I want to really kind of go through three points this morning, and I'm going to give them to you now in advance. Point number one is the transaction. Number two, the transfusion. And number three, the transformation. The transaction, the transfusion, and the transformation. And just as a disclaimer before we jump in, uh, I just want from the onset a kind of front load you with the information that I am going to spend uh, majority of time on point number one and then quickly go through the second and third point. So I don't want you to get scared. So let's begin. Point number one, the transaction. Last week, uh, Pastor Phil brought really a keen lesson, this amazing message on the Passover. And that was the part of history where the people of God were saved from uh, God's wrath uh, and they went from being slaves to being free. Because what happened was each home uh, sacrificed a lamb and then applied the lamb's blood to the doorposts. So when the angel of death went through Egypt, if it saw blood on the doorpost, it passed over it. Uh, and it passed over that home and it did not enter because it knew that death had already been there. And so now the people of God have escaped out of Egypt and they are now learning what it is to live uh, away from the bondage of Pharaoh and pagan gods uh, and what it is to live free to worship the one true God. And so what happened is they left one system and they entered a new system. They they left a system of of tyranny, a system of slavery into a system of salvation. Salvation meaning like deliverance and liberation. And so they left one system and they went into another system. And the reason why they entered this new system is because God was going to take the Passover and really institutionalize it into the nation of Israel's consciousness. And so God gave them very detailed instructions. They they went out into the wilderness and God spoke to Moses and, and he said, listen, here is how you live free. And among those instructions, he also gave them a blueprint to build something called the tabernacle. Um, and tabernacle is really a, it means a tent of meeting, and it, it's a little more intimate than that. But but really, what it was is it was a place where God's manifested presence would come to have relationship with humanity. So God gave Moses an extremely detailed blueprint on how the tent or the tabernacle should be built. There was a outer court and and then there was a covered inner court and then there was the most inner room which was the holy of holies and and so when you read these instructions that were given that were very specific you actually find something that repeats itself it's really interesting it'll give an instruction and then it'll say build this according to the pattern that God showed Moses on the mountain and then it'll give another detailed instruction and it'll say build this according to the pattern that God gave 
Moses on the mountain. And then if we'd read again, build us according to the pattern that God showed Moses on the mountain. And you begin to think, well, what, what is the point of that? Well, well, the point here is, of course, yes, obedience. Um, but, but the point is not just simply a matter of, well, make sure you do it my way. I'm God. Now, there is an element of that. Um, but really, what God is saying is, listen, the, the structure is very important. I need you to get it right because it is a copy. It is a pattern. It's meant to teach you something, right? And so you can't just call in your final architects and decide that, listen, we're going to do it your way. But, but, but rather, you, God's saying, no, 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 you have to do it this way because it's showing you a deeper reality, and that's why it was so important. You couldn't be sure of the uh, typological significance uh, of, of the structure or even of the accoutrements there uh, in, in that place or how they would point forward unless you were sure that God was the one giving this instruction because he knew the deep eternal realities that he would want to reveal through this tabernacle. And so with this tabernacle, he also set up a new system, new structures through, through which he would distinguish believers from everybody else in the world. And that would teach them about themselves, but also about God. And under this new system, it would not only differentiate them from all other cultures and religions and worldviews, but it would, it would become the way in which interaction between a sinful people and a holy God could be possible. And so as we go from the book of Exodus to the book of Isaiah, where we read this morning, and we take that long journey, we have to stop at the book of Leviticus. In fact, the, the, to understand the book of Leviticus is important if we're going to grasp the depths of this message today, because pragmatically, the book of Leviticus, if you like, was the user's manual, so people would know really how to approach God. So everything in Leviticus uh, either made you clean or unclean, what you would wear and, and how you would cook something or what, what, when you would work and so on and so forth. All of this was a social system that really was used as a teaching device, but, but not just to give information, but so that they could actually experience God. So they could actually experience him. Because what's interesting is when you read the book of Leviticus, it'll say things like, don't curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind. I am the Lord God. Or it says, do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord God. It always ends with I am the Lord God. And that's because the cardinal offense is not first and foremost horizontal. But the cardinal offense is first and foremost defying God. See, that is why the first commandment is still the first commandment. Because we are to love God with all of our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. And every social offense that we do will automatically break the first commandment. In other words, you can't break any of God's other commandments without also at the same time breaking the first commandment. Because that, that is to de-God God. It's to dethrone God. It's to, it's, it's to put yourself before God. And when you do that, you automatically introduce a new um, ideology. 
You, you, you automatically introduce a new idol in your heart. And in fact, that's something that we even struggle with today. I don't have time to get in the reality of that. But, but the fact is, is that we too have idols in our heart. We, we too have things in our heart that if we don't have this, then all of a sudden that life almost seems meaningless. Maybe it's a reputation or acceptance or the need to feel wanted or intelligent or part of an economical bracket, right? Maybe for some of us, we, we have to look like we're well-traveled and and so all of a sudden we're going to all these places, you know, Aruba and Jamaica and Bermuda and Bahama, right? Key Largo, Montego, you, you know the song, right? But then, but then the minute that the, that the church offers a missions trip, all of a sudden you don't have the money or the time. And, and, and it's interesting how these certain idols tend to come up within our life. Um, and, and I wish I had time to get into it, but, but I don't. And so I'll digress and I'll kind of get off of that. But, but I want us to see that that's exactly what happens is, is, any time that God set a law in Leviticus or set a command, he let them know that if you break this, the first person you offend isn't the neighbor, even though it might have been against the neighbor. The first person that you actually offend is God. So in this system that God created with the tabernacle and with how to approach him, he, he says, listen, because you're going to cause offenses, I'm going to have to put something in place to help you out. Uh, I'm going to have to put something in place to forgive those offenses. And so as you read the book of Leviticus, you come upon a term called the day of atonement. And this was once a year where the people of Israel would go, uh, and do something about the fact that they had been breaking their promises to God all year. You see, what, what do you do when you have a promise-keeping God, but a promise-breaking people? What do you do? Well, what do you do when you have a promise-keeping God, but a promise-breaking people? Because the reality is it's in our nature to break promises. Our, our hearts naturally point inward. Our, our motives are naturally selfish. Even our good motives are naturally selfish, right? Uh, it, it, whether we feed the poor, or we stand up for injustice, or we give a voice to the marginalized. Uh, if we're nice, if we're kind, right? We, we tend to make it go inward, and we're doing this stuff because, because we, we want to look good. We, we do this stuff because we want to be a good person, right? And, and we tend to almost get religious with it. We, we almost get prideful. We almost get prideful. And, and, and this religious part of us comes out, right? For, for instance, have you ever been in church and, you know, they're passing by the offering plate and, and you pull out money and you go and you put your money in and you pass the plate next to the person next to you, right? And, and, and you kind of eye in and you notice that they didn't put anything in the plate? Right? And you just kind of look at them. And instantly, inside of you, you begin to think, hmm, something's wrong with that person. You, you begin to think, okay, I'm, I'm somehow spiritually superior because of what I did and what they didn't do. And we have all sorts of assumptions. We, you know, in our mind, we have this conversation going on, and we're thinking, well, maybe they give online, but maybe they don't. And all of a sudden, we just start trying to figure this out, and, 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 we, and, we, and we turn it to be so selfish, and we begin to think, well, we're better than them. 
right? Or, or, or maybe, maybe, maybe we see somebody that's just blatantly not living for Jesus Christ. I mean, they're blatantly sinning. They're blatantly living a life of self-indulgence. And you think, man, listen, I need Jesus a little bit, but that person needs Jesus a lot, right? That guy needs Jesus way more than I do. Well, well there you go. You're, you're just making yourself more worthy and you're turning it into a works-based religion. And, and to be honest, we like that. We, we like works-based religion because it keeps us in control. It, it keeps us as our own masters. It, it keeps us as our own lords and our own saviors. It, it really as our own God, as our own God, which is just another form of promise-breaking. So, so what happens when you have a promise-keeping God but a promise-breaking people? Well, God set up a system and we called it the, and he calls it the day of atonement and in this sacrificial system the entire nation of God's people once would come and once a year the high priest would take a live bull and and goat and sheep and would do all these sacrifices but one in particular uh, what they would do is they would take two goats or two sheep um, that had no blemishes on them at all they had to be perfect right they couldn't they had to be healthy they had no blemishes they would take them and uh, what they would do at that point is is they would uh, take one of those sheep and they would sacrifice it and they would burn it and it would be a burnt offering but the other sheep or the other goat they would do something even more fascinating with it is the high priest would go and they would confess um, over it all of the wickedness, all of the rebellion, all of the promise breaking, all of the covenant breaking of the, uh, of the whole nation of Israel. And then, and then he would put his hands onto that sheep's head or that goat's head. And then they would, and then after he put his hands on them um, and confess those sins, then they would send the animal out into the wilderness to be completely separated, to be completely alone, and the animal would die. But that was the way of atonement. Now, what's happening there? Why, why was that important? Why did they have to lay the, the, their hands on the head? And, and what's going on? This is a little weird, but, but what's the significance behind it? Well, because what's happened there was a transaction. See, see, when the high priest went to go put his hands on the head of the sheep, there was a transaction there. See, see the sheep was being treated as the promise breaker. The, the sheep was a substitute for the nation of Israel. And so a transaction would take place. Uh, on one hand, the, 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 imper, the, the perfection of the sheep would become your perfection and your imperfection would become its imperfection. And so a transaction had taken place and that's how righteousness was credited to them. And, and so uh, there was, there was the, the, there was this atonement where they would put their hands upon the sheep and send the sheep or the goat out into the wilderness. Uh, there, there was, there was burnt offerings where they would take the blood and they would burn parts of the animal onto, onto the altar and they would take the blood and they would sprinkle the blood and they would do different things with it. And, and, and they, and they did all of this stuff and God was commanding them to do it because, because God was really bringing them in. He wanted to engage all of their senses in this sacrificial system. 
in this sacrifice. Now, now, now today, when we use the word sacrifice, we, we kind of use it like, oh, I, I sacrifice because I work two extra hours today, or I sacrifice because I'm giving up my Starbucks for a week, right? That, but, but when the Bible uses the term sacrifice, it's actually much bigger than that, right? Because a sacrifice was a bloody reality of a bellowing animal being butchered at the altar. Imagine the sensory overload of the experience the violent resistance of the animal, the spilling of the blood, the feeling of pulling the animal apart, the smelling of its burning flesh and its bones, knowing that it was your sin that made this death necessary. And you would think, you, you would think, you, you would have to think that, that, that with their smoke-scented clothes and their blood-stained hands that they would always be grateful and come in humility and authenticity before the very presence of God. You, you would think that that would be so, but it wasn't. It wasn't. Because see, after Leviticus, then if you keep following the scarlet thread, you get to the promised land and then to judges and then to the kings and then to Solomon's temple. And so book after book and page after page, generation after generation, century after century, there was the same system, the same pattern, the the, the same sacrifices would take place. A high priest would come and, and there would once again be a transaction, transaction after transaction, and eventually we would turn what was a beautiful transaction, a beautiful sort of uh, humbling um, way for God to just come in and have relationship with us. We would turn that, we would turn relationship into routine. We, we, We would take a transaction and then we would become transactional. Which is very different, very different. Meaning this, that eventually this just became a business deal for them. They just, this just became legalistic for them. It was just religious legalism, being legalism. And it's funny, it's funny how this can work out. And it's funny how we can still see it today because you can have two people in a church service, right? And they both faithfully attend, but one has a completely different experience than the other one, Uh, even though they're doing the same thing. And so they both serve or they both raise their hands during worship. They both intently take notes during the sermon, but one is actually experiencing God. One is actually experiencing the power of the God right? And the other's not. Why? That's because one's being relational and the other's being transactional. See, see, one is looking how, at how they interact with Christ, that they're taking that as a covenant, while the other one is looking at it as a contract. One person's looking at it as liberty, while another person's looking at it as law. And both have very different implications. And so what we see, and we see this clearly happening to God's people over time, that, that all of a sudden relationship becomes routine and, and, and it, they become very transactional. And that is because there was a transaction, but there wasn't a transfusion. There was a transaction, but there wasn't a transfusion. Number two, the transfusion. Eventually, they became outwardly connected, but inwardly, they were relationally removed 
to the point that God says in Isaiah chapter one, check this out, verse 11. He says, the multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fatted animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who asked this of you, this trampling in my courts? Stop bringing me meaning offerings. Your, your, incense, your, your incense is detestable to me. New moons and Sabbaths and convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Wow. My goodness. What, 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 is, what is God saying here in Isaiah? What, what is, what, why is Isaiah saying this? Because the reality is, is that even though God set up the sacrificial system, it was only temporary. See, see, under this covenant, under this, this system, it, there would only be transaction. It could never be transfusion. That their hearts didn't actually change. Their motives, in fact, their motives behind their motives didn't change. And that's because, watch this, under the old system, the debt of sin and the just wrath of God was only subdued, but it wasn't satisfied. I'm going to say that again. Under the old system, the debt of sin and the just wrath of God was only subdued, but it was not satisfied. See, see, no matter how unblemished the goat or the bull or the lamb was, it could never actually cover the cost of, sin debt, of sin's debt, right? And nor could it keep them from sinning. He said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. If, if God is the one that is requiring a lamb. And these lambs, for all of these centuries, if these lambs were not them, then where is the lamb that's required? That was the question that Abraham dreaded to hear from his son Isaac. But, and of course, it was inevitable. It was an inevitable question because Abraham was taking his son to perform a sacrifice and Isaac said, Father, we have the fire and we have the wood, but where's the lamb? Where's the lamb? And Abraham, knowing uh, that his son was intended to be the sacrifice, said prophetically that God will provide the lamb. And as the drama unfolds, we know that when they got to the place of sacrifice, there was a lamb stuck in a bush, right? And Abraham was able to substitute that ram and put the ram on the altar and take his son off. But, but see, the question came up again in Egypt because, because again, with Egypt, uh, everybody there, uh, a lamb was required for every house. The blood of the lamb had to be applied to the blood po to, to the doorpost. And so the question that would have been on every firstborn's mind is, where is the lamb? Where's the lamb? But what Isaiah 53 does, which is our text this morning, is it forces us to change the question. It forces us to go from asking where is the lamb to who is the lamb. Because in Isaiah 53, he uses words of personhood. And we quickly realize that there is a major paradigm shift taking place in the words of this prophet. And we see that all along, God would ultimately have the lamb be a man. Why? 
Why? I mean, why, why, why couldn't it just remain lambs? Why, why, did it, why did it have to shift? Why did it have to be a man? Well, Hebrews 10 tells us, and starting in verse 1, look at what it says. It says, the old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow. It was a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. See that? The sacrifice under that system were repeated again and again and year after year, but they were never able to provide the perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. My goodness, if they could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped for the worshipers would have been purified once for all time and their feelings of guilt would have dissipated. But instead, those sacrifices actually reminded them of their sin year after year. Why? Look at verse four tells us because it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. In other words, the the bulls and the goats and the lambs, these animals were limited. These lambs were limited. In fact, they were limited in three ways, and actually there's more that we could probably list, but I'm only going to list three for you. And so number one, the lambs were limited because the lambs could never pay for the sin of man. See, only a human could pay for the sins of a human. That was it. There's no way that a sheep or a bull or a goat could ever pay for the transgressions of a human being. Number two, the lambs were not sacrificed uh, because of their own will. Right. He, in other words, whenever they took a lamb or or any of those animals to sacrifice, it's not like the animal said, "Oh, choose me, I'll do it." No, no, no. But but with, but but see, with Jesus Christ, he he went to the cross voluntarily. He said, "No one takes my life from me." He says, "I lay it down myself." Now, no bull, no goat, no sheep, no lamb could have ever said that. Right. That that was the consenting act of his whole person, his whole personality, his, his godness, which from before, the, the before time in his perfect plan, the father of the father that, that, that he would already make up in his own mind that the lamb would be slain before the foundations of the earth. He, he already made the father already made up in his mind that he's going to send his son to die. And his son already made up in his mind that he's going to voluntarily, willingly do this. And no lamb could have done that. Number three, it's the very fact that they were limited. The very fact that lambs were limited. See, see, when the lamb died, they were sacrificed as created creatures. But when Christ died, he died truly man and truly God. See, sin and the penalty for sin is an eternal punishment, which means that if the debt was going to be covered, it could never have been covered by something finite. It could only have been covered by something infinite. The lambs could have, were limited because the lambs could never pay for the sin of the man. The lambs didn't, were not sacrificed by their own will, and the lambs were finite. So Isaiah is prophetically presenting a new paradigm. 
And what's interesting is in chapter 53, he starts it off with a question. He says, who believes this report? Now, the fact is, 2,000 years later, we can look back and we can actually answer that question, right? We could say, well, hardly anybody believed it, right? Hardly anybody believed that Jesus Christ was the Messiah because Jesus was so ordinary in so many ways, In fact, today's Palm Sunday, and when we read the account of the scriptures of them laying down their clothes and putting palm branches on the ground, it was a sign of a victorious entering, right? And Jesus was entering into Jerusalem. And when he did that, one would have thought that he would have entered into Jerusalem on a steed, but instead he entered on a donkey. So ordinary, In fact, that's what Isaiah says. He says this, that he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, that nothing in his appearance would make us desire him, that he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. He, he, he wasn't noticeably well-built. He wasn't particularly impressive. And, and, and we don't like a God like that. So, so, so what happens is we tend to dress Jesus up. We, we, tre- we, we tend to make Jesus more attractive, more palatable. And so we say, well, listen, if you come to Jesus, he can fix this and he can fix this and he can fix this. And we try to you know, dress him up and make it to where people are like, oh yeah, I need him to come fix my problem. And then what happens is we kind of, make a lot of quasi-followers because now Jesus is just a means to an end instead of the end himself. In other words, they just look at it as a trans- transaction, but, but they haven't been transfused with him because they don't see him as the Lamb of God and the Lord of their life. Isaiah goes on to say in verse 6 that all of us have gone astray. Each of us has turned our own way. And so as a result, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all, that he was oppressed and afflicted, and yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers, he is silent, so he did not open his mouth. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we were healed. You see, we're seeing a new thing. We're seeing a very different thing. We're we're seeing that the brazen altar becomes a wooden tree. What we're seeing is on the cross, the Lamb of God is sacrificed once and for all in our place. This immense truth is at the very heart of the gospel where the priest himself becomes the sacrifice. See, see, before the priest would enter with the blood of bulls and goats or sheep, but this time Christ entered himself, entered himself. And on that cross, he didn't just pacify the law, but he fulfilled it. He, he didn't just subdue the justice of God, but he satisfies it. Because where do you ultimately see the wrath of God come down? On the cross. On the cross. Christ took cosmically the sin of every person in the past and in the present and in the future and compressed it down into three hours where the Canaan king hung on the cross of Calvary there on Golgotha. And as if that wasn't enough, he experienced something on the cross that you and I will never experience. And that is to be forsaken by the Father, to 
actually have the Father's presence completely abandoned. You and I will never know what that's like. But he didn't just do that. He didn't just do that. He didn't just die. The Father just didn't abandon him. But then the blood was applied. In other words, he covered us in his blood. He said, I got you covered. See, see, the cross means that all those who make Christ their Lord, that they are infused with him. That this means that they go from a system of slavery to a system of salvation to a, and a system of sonship. And, and that's because there isn't just a transaction, but there's a transfusion And though the blood of Jesus Christ and through the blood of Jesus Christ, God actually comes in you, right? There there isn't just imputation. And what that means is God declares you righteous, but there's impartation, meaning the Holy Spirit comes and actually regenerates you and makes you righteous. What are you trying to say, Pastor Roger, with with, with transaction and transfusion, right? In, In other words, in other words, a relationship with Jesus Christ, what Christianity actually is, is not behavior modification, but it's actually heart transformation. It's heart transformation. What do you mean? Let me give you an example. You know, a a couple comes in for marriage counseling and the wife is talking about how she wants to get a divorce. In fact, she has the papers. She's ready. She's tired. She feels like she's been neglected from her husband. She feels verbally abused by him, right? And in the counseling session, he's like, see, he, he, he's saying, I'm so sorry. He's crying. He's saying, don't leave me. Don't leave me. I'm going to change. I'm going to change. And so we have a discussion and, and they go back home and for a few weeks, everything's great, right? For a few weeks, he's, he's, I mean, he's really loving her. He's really listening to her. He's paying attention to her. He's, he, he's, under, he, he's understanding her. But after a few weeks, he slowly begins to go back to talking down, to verbally abusing, to neglecting, to ignoring. What happened? Well, what happened was behavior modification, See, see, in that moment, he was just scared to lose her, maybe because he didn't want everybody to think that he's a bad guy or a horrible husband, or maybe he has a fear of being alone, maybe he has a fear of rejection, but whatever it is, there was something within him that, that said, no, 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 I have to keep her, and so he tried to modify his behavior, but his heart was actually not transformed. What we need is transformation. What, what you and I need is a transfusion in order for transformation to take place. Number three, transformation. Now, it's possible for transformation to actually happen. I want you to know that, that, that it is actually possible to experience transformation. And, and what's interesting about that is our society actually says, listen, uh, don't let somebody transform you, right? Right? What they say is, listen, if, if you want to be changed, if you want real change, just look deep within. It's in yourself. You just have to look in there and kind of pull it out, right? You, you can find it, just pull it out. But, but actually, that never works. That never works. That, that doesn't, it never actually brings real transformation. The only way you will experience real transformation from the inside out 
is to let the God that is outside in. The only way that you will experience real transformation from the inside out is to let God, who's from the outside, come in. As I get ready to close this message, you know, I want to let people know I get it. Nobody likes to be told that they need a change, right? In fact, in fact, we say, listen, I'm fine just the way I am. Actually, our society says, don't let anyone tell you that you're bad. Don't let anybody make you feel guilty uh, you, because you define what is right and wrong, right? You define what's acceptable and not acceptable. You are the standard of your morality. You're the standard of morality in your life. And, and really, how's that going, <laughs> Because the, because the reality is, is that you can't even live up to your own morality. You can't even live up to your own standards. Because you know that you don't do everything that you think you should do. Right? And you might say, well, you know, yeah, that's true. But overall, I'm actually a good person. I, I work hard. Right? I'm a good student, or I'm responsible, or, or, or I give to charity. Right, I, I don't beat my spouse. I don't neglect my kids. I, I'm a good person. That's what you say. You know, I'm a good person. Listen, friend. Christ did not come to make bad people good, but he actually came for something far more radical. He came to make dead people live. Wow. He came to make dead people live live. See, the blood of the lamb, the death of Jesus brings you life. I wonder if you're experiencing that life. Oh, oh I know you're living. I, I know you're living, but, but are you living? I know, I know you're raising your kids, but, but are you living? Right? I, I, I get it. I, I understand that you, that you're cooking meals and you're going grocery shopping, but are you living? I get it. You're, you're married and you're in a relationship, but are you living? I, I understand you're breathing, but are you living? Are you living? Because Jesus Christ did not come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. Are you experiencing the life that isn't just a transaction, but a transfusion that brings real transformation. You can, you can, just by beholding the Lamb of God. Wow, I'm gonna pray, and then we're gonna go into a time of response. And then I'll be back with the questions for our Zoom Connects this week. Heavenly Father, I just come before you, God. And Lord Jesus, I thank you. I thank you, Heavenly Father, that you sent your Son. And Lord Jesus, I thank you that you were willing to be led like a sheep to slaughter. And God, that you volunteered your life to die on the cross in my place. And Heavenly Father, I repent, God, for looking at our relationship transactionally, God. 
Heavenly Father, I pray right now for every person, God, that says, listen, I, I want that transfusion to take place. I, I, I want to know God intimately and personally. I, I don't want just behavior modification, but, but I want true heart transformation. Lord, for those that say that, I pray right now, wherever they are at, God, that they will turn to you, Lord Jesus. That they will turn their heart to you. They'll turn their mind to you, God. That they will take down the idols that they have placed there. And Lord God, that they will put you center of their life. Heavenly Father, you are great. You are magnificent. And I give you all the praise and all the honor. Hey guys, I'm so excited because we have our Zoom Connects this week, and that's uh, our small groups done virtually. And so what we're going to do is I'm going to give you the questions that we're going to ask this week. You ready? Number one, in what ways are you being transactional when it comes to Jesus Christ? Number two, how is your understanding of the sacrifices in the Old Testament changed considering the limitations of the lambs? And finally, number three, in what areas of your life are you just modifying your behavior but not allowing the gospel to transform you? Wow, those are some great questions. I'm so excited to be able to dialogue, to be able to open up with each other and grow and laugh. We're going to have an awesome time in our Zoom Connects this week. Thank you guys so much. We love you guys. God bless. Thank you for joining us for this week's Inspire Churches podcast. Don't forget to share or subscribe to join us every Sunday. You can keep up with Inspire Churches through Instagram at Inspire Churches or on Facebook at facebook.com slash inspirechurches. To support the ministry, you can click on the link in the description or visit us at inspirechurches.com for more information.